Welcome to Empowered Returns, a show that surfaces forward-thinking real estate advice that investors and developers need to help them invest smarter and build better. All right, welcome to another episode of Empowered Returns. We are psyched to have Renz Hayes of H&O Engineering. Did I get that right, Renz? H&O Structural Engineering. H&O Structural Engineering, my bad. But welcome, Renz. Psyched all, to have you. All good. We'll drop the structural engineer when everybody just knows what H&O is. Just right? H&O. It's going to be yeah, a lot yeah. more than just that. So. That's what we did, actually. We went from Charles Gate Realty Group. We just really dropped it to Charles Gate at this point. Straight Charles yeah. Gate. I don't know it's if anyone cool. knows what that means, but but we've decided to do it anyway. Yeah. yeah we, we got the domain, too. That's right. <laughs> there you go. That's hard to do. It was just needed someone to take take control there. Perfect. Yeah. Nice work. Exactly. Um, so, Renz, why don't you um, maybe just dive in a little bit of background, how you got into structural engineering in the first place and kind of what that actually means. Explain that to people a little bit. Sure. So structural engineering in its like most understandable form is we collaborate with real estate developers and architects. An architect will really like lay out a building, how the floor plan goes, like where all the rooms are, what the building looks like. And we have to design the bones of the structure, right? We have to make that building stand up. So your your column, your walls, your floors, the foundation, the roof, that's what we're responsible for. How I got into structural engineering, my family build business is Renz Welding and fabricating. So I grew up in a structural steel fabrication shop, fabricating and erecting buildings and then miscellaneous metals, which is stairs and railings and, and that sort of stuff. So that exposed me to buildings. I was naturally drawn to math in school. I hated reading and writing back then. <laughs> and to be honest now, like writing and copyright is become probably my strength in the engineering mm -hmm. field, which is kind of counterintuitive. Uh, so I, I just, there's a, there's a stigma in family business that when you're born into family business, you just, you have it made, right? So like the whole concept back then in high school was like, you're just going to go work for your dad. You're just going to go work for your dad, take <laughs> over the business. And I was like, stats show that most second generations are like bum business owners and they tank the business. And I was like, I'm not going to, I was like, I'm not going to be that guy. Wait, so were you actually thinking about that in high school? Like you oh, recognize yeah. that? Yeah. I went to engineering because I was like, I'm good at math. Engineers are good at math. I know buildings. I'm going to go learn how to design these things so we can design and build them. And I'm adding value to the business instead of just riding coattails of something that was paid before me. Cool. Nice. And so I ended up. So, and you have a, a partner now that you formed H&O with. And so you, you went straight from the family business into the H&O structural engineering. Is that the kind of the background? There's a little loop there. Uh, my business partner, Jeremiah O'Neill, is an absolute stud. I, I always say he's the the 0.01%. The 0.01 is is very intentional. Like he is a top talent in engineering. Guy gets it. And he could explain engineering, the most complicated concept to anyone like mm. the guy has a machine. Um, we, part of getting your license in engineering, you have to one, get the degree, take two tests. But to take the second test, you have to work for for four years under an, uh, under a licensed engineer. Okay. And then you have to pass the test. So I had to go work somewhere else to be mm. able to engineer on my own. And so that's where I met Jeremiah. We were colleagues for a number of years, built a bond, saw like opportunity in, in partnering together. And that's kind of what launched it. But I left that after I got my engineering license, I left the engineering field oh. and started, went back to the family business and ran Renz Welding and Fabricating with my father for four years. Mm -hmm. And in that time, we were getting engineering work through the steel business. And Jeremiah and I were collaborating and getting that engineering work mm. done together while we were growing the steel business. So that exposed us to running a business and what it took to grow a business and the opportunity that running a business presented itself while we were building up this engineering book of work. And that's kind of what led us to kind of take the leap and, and, crap, and grab that opportunity. Interesting. And so I know we've had a lot of conversations about just sort of operating and running businesses. Did you kind of learn that on the fly operating the family business or is it something you were really intentional about from, you know, the very beginning of, of H&O? Great question. So jumping into the family business, I, at that time I was debating on, do I go get an MBA or do I go run the business? And the decision became quite clear. Like I, I thought if I was going to get an MBA, I wanted to go to a top school because I thought the network was a lot of the value. Of the mm -hmm. So I was going to go to MIT Sloan. That was going to be my, my school of choice. That was going to put my career on pause for over a year, cost me a hundred grand, or I could go try to help my family grow a business, 
have full exposure to running a business and I could try to invest and get an MBA level education through a daily habit of audible and podcasts on my commute to work. And that was back in 2014. So I committed to learning and growing all in all areas of business. So while we're trying to grow Ren's Welding and Fabricating, we didn't have marketing. So I'm like, all right, how do we figure out how do I do marketing? I just read books for months straight. How do I manage people? How do I think of operations like pricing, structure? Whatever hurdle we were facing, I would just like dive in for hours a day listening to books. And I had a real live case study to to pull. Mm. And so one of the lessons and and that was really key to us kicking off H and O in the building design world, we have specs. And so one of those things of a steel fabricator, when we design a steel building, in our spec and in most specs across the country, you require them to be an AISC certified fabricator. And that's the American Institute of Steel Construction. Most engineers, including myself growing up in this, I had no clue what that meant. Right. <laughs> it just meant to me that a steel fabricator was better than another one that wasn't certified. That's what it told me. What it truly meant was that they had a written down documented process for how everything happened at the steel company. So from how do you get jobs? How do you price a job? How do you do shop drawings? How do you fabricate steel, buy steel, ship steel? Like literally everything mm. written down step by step. So anyone could plug in and quality standards, quality assurance, it was all documented. Mm. And I was like, like how hypocritical. Like I just came from an industry with none of this process. <laughs> and here we are requiring a steel fabricator to have all this process. And then that was like the light bulb. And we were like, that's the missing piece. Like there's there's no design process there's no intent like we all approach designing a building differently and if we can create a system we're going to be able to optimize and train people at a faster rate in a more aligned manner to like achieve company goals so when we launched h and o in 2016 we didn't launch a website we didn't go out pounding the pavement trying to drive more business we literally wrote down a design process hmm. and figured out like how are we going to scale a business and how are we going to make it successful that when we do get the work, because we knew the work was there, when we need to onboard and train people, how are we going to do that successfully? And we build that first. Mm. It's funny that that's the uh, that's exactly I think the stereotypical thought I would have. Of course, an engineer plans how to start the business and run the business before actually diving in and going to pound the bank. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike us, who was like, uh, "Yeah, you want to do business with us? Yeah, let's go." Yeah, uh, yeah. no clue what we're doing. Sales, sales, sales. You'll pay me to do this? Yeah, yes, that's, that's exactly right. what we do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we've, we've, at least we've learned over time that we do, in fact, need a lot of, of the process and, and, and sort of business planning and, and even just building culture and everything else you want to do with a business. That's really the important part to building a sustainable, growing, strong business. Uh, but it took us a while to learn that. So it's, uh, kudos to you for figuring that out very early. Culture is a hard one, right? And, and to be honest, through most of my career, I didn't see the importance of culture. It wasn't until like you submerse yourself in like organizational balance and growth and teams that you start to learn about culture. Like I would say most of society still is not in tune with like, what's the negative and the upside to culture, right? Like culture debt is the worst debt you can have in a business. It's the hardest debt to pay back. Mm. Yeah, without a doubt. Without, and I, I like to say, too, that the, there's very few true differentiators in any business, and culture is, is one of those things, really. Your people and your culture is what really differentiates you. Because there's so many, you know, in your business, our business, and most businesses, there's so many competitors and so many things you can do alike and maybe better or, you know, diff slightly differently. But the people are really what makes a business different. 100%, especially in professional services like your business and yeah, our business, right? Exactly, totally. So how do you take that sort of blueprint, right? and apply that to the assignments you take on, right? On an execution level, when you're working on developments, I mean, I think it's really interesting and it seems like it's a very different approach than a lot of your competitors take, right? Like it's kind of a more holistic view. Can you kind of walk us through sort of how you've used that as a way to, to kind of be your plat your service platform? Yeah, sure. So. I'll start at a bigger picture of an organization on how to create alignment in a culture. And I, I'm kind of a broken record when I talk about this stuff. It's your mission, your vision, and your core values. That was a lesson I learned like years into running a business. I was like, I've studied everything. I have a pretty high business acumen, but I feel like a yo-yo over here. I pull one string and the other thing falls down. I improve here. And like, I was like, where the hell do you start? 
where do you start? And it's the mission, vision, and values. That's your purpose. That's where your company is going, like your North Star, your five-year vision. Like, what are we all working towards? What is this company going to be known for in five years? And your core values guide decision-making and organizational behavior. So when you have those things, that's a framework, right? That's the bumper on the bowling lane for people to make decisions that are in the best interest of the company. If you haven't defined why a company exists or how you create value or where you're going, like how is the team going to intuitively have the context to help the company succeed? Like success isn't defined. So when that comes down to a project, if you're just taking on any work, you, you don't really understand what the value you're trying to drive is. You're just doing a task for a client that hired you to do a task. Yeah. So if that's what you think your job is, you just put your head down and start doing the task, right? Where we're trying to align with clients of growth and scale, like we have national vision, we're trying to expand nationally, work in the biggest and best projects, the high rise, the large scale developments, and we need to provide value. So how we do that is we, the saying that I come is we're not in the structural engineering business serving real estate developers. We're in the real estate development business serving structural engineering. Like that is the vehicle that in which we contribute to the success of a development. So when a developer comes in, it's like, all right, what are we trying to achieve? What are the goals? Is there any deadlines or timelines that are like a major risk or a major opportunity, right? Tax credits, is there historic tax credits on this job? Those come with a big deadline. What do we have to do to get there? What do you need to make that happen? Is there an equity that like portion? Is there a grant involved? Is there a bank debt? Is there a closure date that we have to quantify risk and opportunity and development before you can close on a piece of land? Like understanding what the risk and opportunity that caters the decision making and the information we put out to start a project. So it all starts with project planning, right? You identify the risk, you identify the opportunity, you identify the timeline, and then we work on driving quality decisions and communicating how each decision impacts the, the success of the project. Mm. That's really how we start. Yeah, I know that, that's a great, um, I think point there is just making sure your goals are aligned to say, what is the vision of this overall project? Not what is the piece, not, not what the point of this one piece is, but what's the, what's the alignment for the overall project, the goals of the project, you know, whether it's financial goals or others that you mentioned. And, and that's a key piece. So I guess the question is how, how do you ensure that? Well, first of all, how do you, how are you guys getting business now? Are you getting it from architects, from developers directly, uh, you know, responding to RFPs, marketing, and, you know, with the business you're getting, how are you making sure that your vision, your purpose is aligned with, you know, the projects and the developers? In terms of how we get work and a lot of what we're doing, let's say two years ago, I started investing in building a brand and becoming visible within the market. Like there's a, there's a saying, it's not who you know, it's who knows you, right? You could be the best company in the world, but if top talent doesn't know you exist and what opportunity you provide for why they should work there, like they're never going to find you, they're not going to reach out. And the clients if they don't know about you or where you provide value or what you're about, they're not going to come knocking on your door. So I think the most important thing you can do in today's environment is build the brand and be visible, right? So two years ago, we started posting on LinkedIn to create and share our point of view and, and kind of put out a brand image of like a very high quality organization that understands like the cause and effect of business and how it delivers a, a quality product at the end of the day. Um, and in a way, like we're a growing business that operates and competes at a high level, but a small business to the untrained eye can appear like a, as a risk. If you've been following and paying attention to the things we talk about and how we operate over the last two years, you're not going to question whether or not we can do our job. Of course we can do our mm -hmm. job. Like we are very well prepared to do that. Um, I do question sometimes in like, do we need a better outbound strategy or like right now? The, the online presence, the podcast, the goodwill, sharing like other people's stories, creating value in the market, that creates demand. If I had to be critical of like our current space and what I'm focused on now is how do we capture demand? Like I don't have an easy, painless way for people to get in touch other than a direct message, which to some of us is no big deal. Like, hey, just send a message. But <laughs> to others, that's a pretty big leap. Yeah. You got to like make it, you got to invite it. Alex Ramosi puts it like, you got to make an offer so good. People feel stupid saying no. <laughs> like, I got to make that painless. I got to have a better, clear value proposition and more availability to make it easy for people to get in touch. Mm. And then even in outbound, like in my experience, cold outbound does not work. It's like, hey, Mr. Developer, architect, like 
you do work, we do, we design buildings. Like, what do you say? You hire us for your next job. Like not a very good sales pitch, right? Like you got to hit a pain point, but it, warm introductions are always welcome. And now when we get a warm introduction, we've created a brand and chances are they know who we are. So yeah. it makes that conversation much easier and we can get straight to value. Yeah. And one thing we've talked about, and it was very interesting when, you know, one of the first times we were, we were together kind of talking shop, you like are very selective with your clients and, and the projects that you take on. 100%. And, you know, uh, a lot of people obviously take that opposite approach, which is like any piece of business they can get their hands on, they're going to go try to grab it. And, um, yeah, we, we talk about right fit clients, right? We, we've had that conversation 100%. before. And, and, and there's an alignment there is a word that's been used a lot, you know, so far in this conversation. So talk a little bit about kind of how that makes you, how that's differentiated you from your competitors and sort of how you go through that vetting process on, you know, what clients and or projects that you want to take on. Charles Gate does that uh, in a great way too, right? Like client alignment is so important. You guys understand that. I'll come at this with two different examples because I think both are very applicable to really any industry and any client relationship. One's going to be on execution once you're in an agreement working on a project together. There's that one. And then there's the second one is like just holistic alignment as a client in the values, but also the scale in which you're trying to operate. So I'll go with project execution for the first one. We, we talk about setting up I, I try, you got to define the parameters in which success is going to be measured. So that's goals and that's timeline and that's people responsible. You guys are developing a building. You ask me like, Hey, Renz, can you design a permit set in four weeks? And I say, that's a, that's a really aggressive schedule. You guys are important to us. We can get it done, but I need X, Y, and Z by Friday. Can you get me X, Y, and Z on Friday? Yes. All right, great. Do, does the client get you X, Y, and Z on Friday or do they have an excuse or do they push it? Or do they understand that because they couldn't get their job done, we're now in a compromised position to do our job? What a lot, of, what can happen often in business is people feel pressured, like, "Oh, we really want to get this client. It, it requires a four-week turnaround." We say yes, but then we have no communication of give and take on what actually has to happen for that deliverable to have a quality outcome. Like we can make stuff up and jump to assumptions and make decisions on a building without getting input from others, but does that really put everybody in a position to succeed? No, it creates a, a massive risk because there might be change later. It's probably gonna be more expensive. I might've cut corners on designing efficiently because designing heavy was, was easier for me to hit your deadline. So oops, like it could have been a million dollar structure. Now it's 1.25, right? Because mm. I wanted to make you happy, get the job and get it done and for, by that date. So there's always a given, anything's possible, right? It just takes time and money. The second piece I'd add to that on client alignment is not every $10,000 job is created equal, right? Let's say you could make the same amount of profit. A, a it costs you $5,000 to do the job and you could make 5,000 by doing this $10,000 job for a client. For someone like us, if we're looking to work on high rise, large scale jobs, and we wanna do so at a national level, it helps us to focus on clients that do this type of work in volume. So our, our ideal client are people that we can generate north of a half million or a million dollars in work a year with. If we're trying to do, if we have an opportunity to work with that client and their first, and our first go at is a $10,000 job all day, right? We have, we're aligned in where we're trying to go. And this is our, our first intro to see how we work to, well together. If somebody's coming at us with a $10,000 job and they might only do one, two, or three of those a year, we wish you well. You might be very well like suited. We might work great together. There's not enough volume that makes it worth our time. Every hour spent in your business is doing two things. It's earning money for the business today, and it's putting you in a position to earn money tomorrow or next year or in five years. So I want to make sure we're getting the compounding value on that time spent by working with the right clients that are going to build that future business. Mm. It's a, it's especially early in the business. That's a, a, it's a, it's a very confident mindset to go. It's hard to develop, I think, for a lot of people. But, but it's, it's amazing to, to hear sort of that confidence saying, I don't need to. I'm not in a position that I'm under this pressure to take every job. I can, I can make sure there's that alignment. How, how do you? Um, oh, I guess how did you develop that mindset so early? A and B. How do you um, how do you communicate with clients ahead of a project starting, like an, whether it's an onboarding process or some other method, to make sure that there is that you know not just 
talking the big picture of alignment, but saying, hey, we need this by Friday. How do you make sure that that stuff is clear, clearly spelled out for them what you need to do your job? Like in, in actually like what we're expecting from them to be able to do that job successfully. Yeah. We're literally communicating right back to them. It's like they send us, a, it's an accelerated compressed schedule. And like our job is to say whether it is or is not possible. And if it is possible, what we need from them to make that happen, right? So that might be architectural. Let's say it's a multifamily building. We all work with multifamily. It's are the units finalized, right? Like, do we have actual like drawings where that's like confirmed? Is the is the edge of the building set? Is the facade complete? Do we know where the canopies are? Like, if we're working on a really tight schedule, those are things that we're communicating. Like, rough units set at schematic. By the time we go to DD, we're looking for final unit plans. That type of thing, right? We're getting buy-in on what are we making the elevator shaft out of? Is there gypcrete on the floor? Is it like? Uh, an acoustic mat with two layers of, of sheathing. The things that are going to impact our job is our responsibility to communicate. And we we just push all of those decisions. I like to say 70% of the decisions on every building and every real estate development, the same decisions have to be made. Mm -hmm. So why don't we just kick off the project by making those decisions? And we've now significantly reduced our risk. We've reduced the chance of change. And we've con we've significantly increased our probability of success. And when, when you eliminate risk and all wasted efforts, like spinning our wheels, we call it scope creep or rework, doing things more than once, you align decision-making with an actual process, like it creates time for everybody on the team to actually focus on things that create value instead of like trying to cover up our tracks to just get a job done and overcome our flaws, right? Mm. No, that's, I think that's the right mindset. And I think, I think the more you can convey to your clients, like, Hey, this is where we've set up these best practices so that we create a better result for you. And you know, that, that really echo that alignment and make sure they understand that. And Hey, we need you to deliver or to, you know, provide an answer when in your case, it's, you know, drawings or architectural plans or whatever mm -hmm. you may need in our case, it's different things, but to, to set that up, to make sure that everyone's clear on what's needed or else the job just can't get done, or it's going to cost more money, take more time. And, and all those things, but it's again, it's just, it's I'm, I'm I'm impressed, and I, we've talked about this before because you've developed that mindset so early on when it's you know a lot, the usual mode of operation is take any business you can get, so that's that's pretty cool. But yeah, but that's right. why you're delivering such incredible value to your clients and getting a lot of repeat business, and you're growing and scaling nationally in, in that way. So that's awesome. So good for you. Thank you so much. What um on the on the on the specifics of actually diving into the engineering and the structure, like what is it? Where is it that you guys think you can? deliver value to a client. So say, say I'm, say we're developing a project and we come to you and be like, Hey, we want to hire H and O, or we have this other firm we're looking at. Where is it that you guys are coming in saying we're, we're different because we're out adding this, we're delivering value in excess of this other company. What's the kind of value prop yeah. specifically? And there's a lot of volume coming with this. Client. There's a lot of volume. Lot of volume. We're, we're going to keep yeah. so, so you're going to, you're going to want this job. I'm a business. <laughs> <laughs> This is an important client. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing a, many more projects very quickly. A lot of projects. Really excited for their next development. Um, first, I, I'm by far I'm in the business of engineering. I'm like not as much in the X and O's, but when it comes to where we create the the biggest difference, it's in the project planning phase. So let's say you want to build a high rise. It's like, all right, what city are we working in? How big is it? How how similar are the floor plans? And then we start talking about, we, we're looking at that specific building, and then we talk about what are our structural options, right? Boston's a steel city. New York's a concrete city, right? So like it, it's regionally dependent, it's city dependent. And, and the way we, we, we do that is we lay out the pros and cons for each system. We get buy-in from the, de the development team, and you kick things off by doing a conceptual study. So we can do a high level amount of engineering and a pretty in-depth coordination markup on conceptual drawings so that we select the right system. I think it's a huge fail when if you haven't gone through that due diligence, if you price out an entire building and then realize there's another building type that we could have done this with, and now we just lost an eight month design process and we got to turn back around and redesign this building. It's like, that's time value of money. That's a big risk in real estate development from my perspective. Mm -hmm. So yeah. when we can push that conversation and talk about pros and cons, and then like if we, we get a contractor involved to do conceptual pricing, you, you test the concrete model, you look at it as composite steel, you look at it, can it be mass timber? Can it be a light gauge structural system? You compare your options and that, it just improves our decision-making collectively as a team when we're putting the right information on the table. Mm. Awesome. Um, so... 
just uh, again understanding that um you know that's maybe the, you know again more the the sort of holistic business side but just getting in the weeds a little bit on this how do you stay on top of all these trends and do you see any major trends coming in your you know in the execution side of your business that are going to have impact um you know for for developers impact for developers I, the biggest trend right now in development and sustainability reducing our carbon footprint is mass timber I, you guys see me out there i'm yeah, always yeah, talking yeah. about mass yeah, timber we yeah. got boston's first seven story mass yeah, timber cool. building yeah. 11 east lennox go yeah. check it out yeah um it really fits it what's exciting real estate and development and construction that is there i don't know if there's a more mature industry out there and when you have a mature industry it means it's very well saturated in the suppliers and how things are done and it's very much the same so you can get commoditized very easily if you're not trying to differentiate intentionally right so mass timber is kind of unique it's like an emerging market within a very mature industry which means there's no legacy brand that owns that space so we're a rising firm providing high quality work at scale right but we're still displacing previous suppliers that were in that space an emerging market comes along, no one owns that. So we have as good of a shot at getting to the top of the mass timber market as anyone. So that's really exciting. And I think from a developer's perspective, the same thing applies to your building. Like how do you differentiate from the from the condo or the apartment building down the street or across the street, right? Or across the town in the other neighborhood? Like it's an opportunity to paint a better, like there's a sustainability, there's a differentiator. It's not better, it's different. It's got a different aesthetic, a different vibe. It's gonna to appeal to different people. So I think it's a really exciting product. Yeah, awesome. And, uh, you know, I, I, from what I've seen, especially from you putting out there in the world, that it, it, it is it is a very exciting product for all those reasons. And, and how, do you, does that affect how you guys, I mean, does it require a lot of work from you and your team as far as retraining and learning these new systems, whether it's Mass Timber or some other one? Or how do you, how do you go about making sure your, your whole team is staying on the forefront of some of those new uh, material sciences or whatever? It, it does require some let's like R&D, right, Res research and development. So especially for that first push to get 11 East Lennox out there, like the, de the development team, the contractor, the architect, our, our team, like we literally all went to a conference mm. in New York just to go try to meet the right people and talk to the right people. And that's what ended up giving us visibility into how to get a mass timber development done. It connected us with the right partners. Um, Eli Gould of the Quebec Wood Export Bureau was like instrumental. And then we got connected with Jean-Marc Dubois of Nordic Structures, who was our mass timber product on that process. Um, in terms of like getting our team up to speed, uh, and this is a, actually a really good business like case study, and you understand the importance of being niche, correct? We have a, a very deep technical expertise on our team and a wide breadth like there literally isn't a building we couldn't design mm. you can throw any material at us any building type uh we i actually feel fortunate in structural engineering it's really like the things that change in a building are the layout the facade and the mechanical systems and the loads from the people that are in them like not that many variables we can figure that out like it's a very short learning curve to transition to another in an architect you can't take an architect that lays out multifamily residential apartment housing and say, Hey, I got a hospital. Could you lay the hospital up for me? Like that the learning curve to go from market to market as an architect or even a mechanical engineer is massively different. And to us, like the, the jump isn't that big. So just because you can do something, does that mean you should? And that comes back to like the decision as a business, like, do you go niche? Like structural engineering is already pretty niche, but like, do we go niche on a market? Like, do I say like, I'm only multifamily or I'm only lab or I'm only hospitals or do you try to spread it? And it's like, do you stay niche to a certain point and then you you expand by going into new markets and like when's the right time to expand? I don't have the crystal ball, mm. but those are the things that are going on in my head trying to figure it out. Yeah, interesting sort of business corporate strategy questions and, and how you grow the business and 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 where the where the different mm -hmm. um, opportunities lie. So yeah, those are always the, the 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 fun things for me anyway to think about that is how do you grow the business? How do you you know how do you attract the right customers? How do you you know how are you how are you producing attracting those right clients? For instance, whether you're using mm -hmm. an outbound sales strategy or inbound marketing or brand awareness or whatever, but. But, um, but yeah, those are, those are the fascinating questions for sure. Those for are the sure. puzzles. Yeah, those are the puzzles. Exactly. <laughs> um, sticking with the sort of structural engineering a little bit, is there anything that you see as being done 
uh, or mistakes made on projects that you think are either costing too much money or you know adding too much risk or or anything that is, relates to sort of the engineering side or even you know design and engineering in general that you've seen that developers or investors may want to look out for or think about in the future things that i look for or advice that i give holistically to real estate developers and this is coming again like i focus on the business of things right so i when i'm looking and evaluating our partners in business or any type of company i'm trying to judge and measure the quality of the business that i'm working with like if if you're comparing i like to say like in in real estate development, right? If you have, let's say your building's $100 million. Like I use a rough order of magnitude, 30% of your building costs is your structure. So my, my focus is on that $30 million and how can I get the best return on your investment for that? If I can move that 5%, that's a significant amount of money. Mm-hmm. And then if you think about the people that you're hiring or the consultant that you're hiring, 10, 20, 30% premium on a, on a fee, might be 50 grand, 80 grand, but like the the buyer in you is like, hey, I got a 50, I say 50 grand right here, mm-hmm. that's 50 grand in my pocket. And then all of a sudden you look at that, they're 50 grand, but they're not as high quality of an organization. They don't have training, they don't have a design process, they don't really have quality assurance. They're taking on too much work because they say yes to everything and they're priced low, so people mm-hmm. say yes more. So now they don't have a system, they can't manage the work that they have there. So their risk is that they're, they don't have the capacity to give the project the focus. And risk when you're talking about a $30 million move, right? 10% on a $30 million, that's that's three million bucks. Five percent is one and a half. Real money. Five versus you know maybe an extra fifty grand in a fee. Fifty right? grand. Yeah. And then so yep. what? when I look and talk like that, if I'm selling on those things, I'm talking about reducing risk, giving you confidence. Remember, I'm a development partner. I'm not your structural engineer. I'm a development partner who happens to be able to service the project as a structural engineer. So we're focused on making sure you're not throwing away that five or ten percent of your thirty million dollar investment. Yeah, and, and and I think the the we, we talk about this a lot too. We see we see oftentimes the mistake being made of trying to you know do this value engineering and saving money, saving money on vendors or saving money on like finishes. These minor things that and it can can have a much more dramatic impact on the overall value you're delivering to the market at the end of the day. Which is you know we're we're all building buildings to sell them or to lease them, not mm-hmm. just to you know, build them and save the most cost we can build them. We make them sell them to the right audience or to the right customers and to the right, you know, tenants to make a good return on investment. And if you're looking at it from the, that holistic lens that you mentioned of, you know, I don't have to spend the least amount of money possible on any given part of this. What I have to do is make sure the money is being spelled correctly so that mm-hmm. I'm getting, I'm creating the best return on investment for myself and, and the investors in the project. And I think it's hard because like cost is part of the equation, but it's, and it's easy to see those face costs. That's like, you know, in a structural engineer's cost versus like, oh, by designing a project better, not having cost overruns and, and, and you're going to save more money throughout the scope yeah. of a project. And this, risk yeah. of future financial exposure. All right? of that. All of that. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. 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 And when it comes to building design, that, that risk you're talking the, about, the, the change trail. orders, like yeah. not mm-hmm. like, well, that's, there's a yeah. saying, you got to yeah. know okay. your scope. So like one of our, one of our biggest responsibilities as a design consultant is we have a set of drawings that are essentially a set of instructions for people to build the building, right? They follow the set of instructions so they know how to build it. It's also capturing scope so that there can be a confident buyout. You're a developer and you got a construction price based on a set of drawings and you already raised your equity and you already raised your debt and then you have a change order for 50 grand, 100 grand, half million bucks, like depending on what the scope is, right? Like Where's that money coming from? Mm. Like you go like hand in your pockets, tail between your legs and ask for more money or you like write a check out of your own checkbook. Like those are painful conversations. So a lot of what our role as consultants is like define an entire scope, identify areas of fee exposure, particularly in existing buildings. There's things you don't know. So you want to have higher contingencies. But our role is to highlight here's the areas that we could run into. Let's help quantify what those buckets might look like so that you can build the right pro forma and understand what you're going for. And how do we mitigate that risk, right? Mm, fascinating. It's, it's predictability of your capital. That's ultimately what we're selling. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, predictability in planning, predictability of, of, of capital, and actually being able to, you know, deliver projects on time, you know, and, and actually, because exactly, well, on budget, but yeah, but ultimately, you know, there's the time value of money that you that you mentioned earlier, and so a six month or you know delay is 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 hits your return hard. In carry a lot of cases. costs, yeah, carry tough. costs, everything else, yeah. yeah. 
Um, any examples of um, uh, projects that you've worked on that were, you know, difficult or challenging or that you had to, you know, think really creatively to overcome those challenges? We're coming at this from a technical lens. Hey, tech, it could be technical. I'd love to hear the technical if you have the, one. Let, let's talk about a technical. We're doing a 100,000 square foot um, repositioning of an old timber building, six story. On one side, it's six stories. On the other side, it's five stories. It's it's old heavy timber inside of a brick round, like a, a brick exterior wall assembly, right? And we're repositioning this as a lab building. So that means you have to increase floor performance. The timber is not conducive to that type of floor, so we're pouring a concrete topping on all mm. that. And there's heavy mechanical that goes on the roof. These brick buildings were built was built pre 1900. It's really old, and it doesn't meet today's like design codes. And when you add that much equipment on the roof and you add all this mass with the concrete topping on top of the floors, we trigger a lateral upgrade. So how do you how do you upgrade the lateral system on an existing brick building? It's really challenging. Mm. How do you do that? cost effectively and maintain the floor program, right? And Seaport, I think a lot of us know, like the soils aren't great in Seaport, <laughs> right? It's essentially in the ocean. You have piles under there, the soil's useless. So you have pile supported foundations. You have a lateral system that doesn't work and we gotta make this building suitable. And so uh, a really cool way to upgrade the lateral system in an existing brick building is creating a concrete shear wall and it's one-sided and you use a, a product called shotcrete. Often we all know of concrete and you see a porn in a house or on a building, you have formwork on both sides and you use a, a concrete truck or a pump truck and you dump concrete down there. This is literally shotcrete sprayed on the wall like mm. a hose. So the, the brick acts as your form. We put a layer of rebar up the wall and then you spray the inside of the wall. And that's how we're able to get that strength to increase the lateral system on the building. Wow, cool. It's so it's very like, creative. Like, like, it's almost like it's spray, like spray insulation, except it's actual concrete. Correct. Rebar wedge. But wow, that's crazy. It's a great analogy. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Okay. Wow, interesting. All right. And, but existing buildings, complex, like vertical existing building repositioning, those are probably the most complicated buildings you run into. And I'd say like not all engineers can. Uh, it's a different like you got to wrap your mind around that building differently. You're not starting from scratch and you don't get to pick and choose where things are half the things you don't know what you're going to run into. So that's a big one on identifying scope, communicating what things may or may not be and how do you navigate that? Yeah. It's interesting. Those sort of historical, um, rehabs or innovations are, 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 are so fascinating. Sometimes, you know, you see these beautiful end projects, but there's so much difficulty and challenges in a lot of these, like the one mm -hmm. you just gave that, that it's fascinating, but it's beautiful around here because we see it a lot because, you know, it's an old city and old city. area. And so you see it a lot and, it, and it's, and it's cool because you're preserving some history while still modernizing, um, but there's a lot of difficulties and, you know, I wish I was uh, as smart as you to figure some of this, this engineering out, but <laughs> so, so that was a challenging one. What's kind of like been the most exciting ones you've worked on? Just one or two examples. Really exciting project for us. We're working with landmark associates and, and cube three on an 18 story high rise student housing development in Philadelphia. That's going to top out in March. Nice. Uh, that was a really exciting portfolio element to us. That's the tallest building we have to date. And we've always been pushing. We 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 service high rise projects, and this one was like the first one to get out of the ground and get up there. So we're really that's, excited that's awesome. to see that. Yeah. Oh, oh, very cool. And um, is that your first project or in Philadelphia as well? That is our first project in Philly. So we work with a few national clients. So we have like a, a book of work. We've probably done work in almost half the states at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, but Philadelphia has got kind of a pipeline of more uh, vertical development, which is really exciting to see. Cool. Does it matter for you guys locationally where where buildings are located? Do you, have, do you feel like you need to travel out there at all or how does it work for your process? Yeah, so we do. So we're willing to do a project if it aligns like client wise and project wise. Mm -hmm. Again, that kind of client fit we will do a project pretty much anywhere. We're starting to be open to the idea of working internationally. No. So that would be pretty cool. Right now we're really focused on national growth, but I could see us expanding internationally in the future. Uh, so it's really that client alignment. If, if you think about your smaller apartment building, right? Let's say a design fee that's like 50,000 or 100,000. The premium you might pay to have us travel out there, if you're only doing one-off deals or working in one city, to pay us to come out there on a $50,000 job, the premium is probably not necessarily worth it. But if you're a national client that's doing 200,000 square foot to 500,000 square foot buildings across the country, it's better to have like a uh, consistency in your design team 
and then we all service the project nationally, right? Like that is a is is reducing your risk greater than rather than trying to find a new partner in every city you go to. So if you're working on a national scale or projects big enough, right? Like we're trying to create a brand, so we build relationships, and if we get enough momentum, we'll open offices in these cities. But if you're building a high rise, we've been collaborating. You see us through the podcast, through LinkedIn, through our website, and you really understand and, and want to partner with us. You're doing a high rise building like it's really not a premium for us to get out there. We're coming. Mm. Right. Awesome. Any favorite cities so far or <laughs> places to, to work? Favorite cities, places to work. Um, we just opened in Denver. I would say it, it's our it's our it's our reopening. We we honestly we we didn't make a we opened an office there in 2018 and we didn't have the right person to run the office. And then really our growth was focused here. So we didn't focus on trying to build an, a presence in Denver. We've always had people in and around the Denver markets mm-hmm. so people in Colorado Springs. And most recently, somebody on our team, Trevor Lombardi, moved from Boston to Denver to mm-hmm. like reopen that cool. office. And cool. we're really excited about that city. Just kind of expecting to hear more golf markets. Um, we do, we do focus around golf. We should go south. <laughs> I do. If I were to say about an area that I'm excited to see, and if, if I had to put, put my finger on a spot that will be next would be Raleigh. Yeah. There you go. New tech hub, like yeah. housing. If you yep. look at like, we should talk about supply and demand up yeah. here. The, the demand is here, but the price point of rent might push the demand elsewhere. And if I'm thinking I'm a young professional, I'm not tied down to the city. I don't see an income to offset the cost of rent around here. Raleigh's growing like gangbusters. They yeah. have the tech, they have the job growth, they have great golf. Like I might move there. <laughs> Hospitals, <laughs> universities. Yeah, they've got some, you know, yeah, it's a good there, fundamental market for there's sure. There's a good yeah. fundamental market. And we yeah. know some some key clients that are looking down there. So it could make it even more enticing. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think, you know, not to sidetrack this into a Boston affordability sort of conversation, but, you know, we're seeing that type of stuff happening. Hopefully we can solve that, solve that problem. And, and there's a lot of aspects of, of, of that, including adding density here. But frankly, again, the reason why we wanted to have you on the podcast is like everything matters. It's a team sport, like designing buildings well, doing good engineering. So you're not having cost overruns that, that all that stuff matters in terms of delivering product to the market at a cost that is not just continue to accelerate and you can everyone can make reasonable returns but mm-hmm. also provide great places to live at a uh, at, at a at a at a reasonable price level for this and it's so important for the city here this in, is a in new Boston. market yeah. right like, over the past five years it seems like you couldn't lose in real estate development and it wasn't always it's hindsight now it wasn't always that predictable but chances are if you made a mistake in the last five years it didn't really hurt you you still won Right. Going forward, it's not that that's not the game we're playing anymore. Like margins are tighter. Returns are going to be tighter. Like you want to have better predictability of your cash because you don't have the room for error. Right. Yeah. That's well said. Absolutely. Um, what What would you say if we were to say, you know, hey, this this is sort of the prevalent prevalent thinking in, in, in structural engineering. What's one thing you really strongly disagree with that most other people think is on the right track, but you disagree with at this point? It's a great question. I would say over-designing is a bigger issue than people realize, mm. largely because they don't understand the cost of what over-designing is, right? Like we talked about what's 5% on a building. Well, like 5% on your foundation and then 5% on your steel and your building's made of steel and concrete and your building's large, like those numbers add up, right? So it feels, in some case, I feel like being a little conservative feels safer, Right. And it kind of lets you sleep at night. But if you're designing appropriately and you have the design systems and the quality assurance and the competency and you've built the alignment, you understand why it's important to design to the building, not to some arbitrary added safety on the building. I I think it's really important, especially in private development. That stuff really matters. It's funny. It's always just talking like that reminds me of my dad. Oh, everything used to be built better back in the day. And I'm like, well, even before science and before cool engineering firms like H&L, like, what are you talking about here? Right. So it's like, yeah, I mean, you'll see that the, the house builders, right? They're like, oh, yeah, two by 10 will go a mile. It's like, well, no, it didn't. Like your floor sagged a foot and a half. But like, yeah, it didn't cave in. Congrats. <laughs> Not yet. Anyway. Or I love the one where like, um, oh, like I couldn't move that or like I jumped on the floor. It didn't move. It's like the design load was a little bit more than you jumping on the floor. Like, yeah, we appreciate your perspective. <laughs> Classic. So what, what, what else is in the future of H&O here? I know obviously we've got big growth plans. Is there, you know, uh, you know, expanding markets, but what, what, what is the vision? 
Well, for those that don't know us, like the big initiative right now is our new design development podcast, which we're really excited about that comes out every week on Wednesday morning. So if you haven't heard it, tune in. It's your hub to learn direct from top performers in real estate development, design and construction. Uh, we're super excited about that initiative. Like we're helping showcase people like Mike DeMella, PT's a future guest, showcase what you guys do well, all the things in leadership and provide value to the audience, right? Like help them see a path because like all of our stories are different, right? Like success isn't like one straight line. So we want to share those stories. The vision for H&O is really more of that national growth and something I haven't been too vocal about. So thank you for giving me the, the platform. We said we're going to grow nationally so we can service national clients from here. We're going to open up branch office in other areas. We're also going to start buying other firms. And I would say that part of our growth plan starts in about two years. And one of the things that we do differently than all of our competitors, and, and one of the things that was really compelling to us when we launched H&O, is we wanted to break the, there's kind of a career ceiling that you can see across the industry. And it's not just engineering, it's really every industry. There's mm. clear career ceilings in a workforce. And the reason is it's a few people at the top of the firm or the company understand, hopefully they understand, understand how the business works and how it makes money. Everybody else is just trained to do the things that make the business money without connecting the dots to what they do to how it produces the result. They don't, so people don't get exposed to the business. They don't see the full, it, it's really a, a wheel. It's a circle of things of doing all these things, right? Like how do you position yourself in the market? What's your value position? How do you communicate? Do you have a process? Marketing, sales, people. Do you have a strategic hiring plan that aligns? So what we're doing is we have H&O University training and development. It's not just engineering, it's everything in business. And then we have open book financial management. So we're opening up our company as the case study for everything that they're learning and we're talking about. What does that do? When we go into this next level of growth, we're gonna start buying businesses, but it's not just me, it's not just Jeremiah and I that know how and why we're buying a business and how that works. We have an entire team that understands the what we're doing our, our mission is a better experience we're trying to have a better experience for our team and for our clients for our team is career opportunity learning opportunity psych like psychological safety in the workplace right like don't be afraid to make a mistake don't be afraid that you don't know how to do something we're collectively trying to grow when we go to buy another firm that probably doesn't have training doesn't have good systems right doesn't have financial transparency we're going to open their books to them. We're going to show them our books. We're going to show their lack of systems and process. We're going to show ours. And then we're going to show, hey, you have a company-wide bonus plan tied to your like company performance. And here's our history of our performance. Do you want to operate how you've always operated or are you in on the H&O mm -hmm. way? We think it's a pretty good strategy to like create. It's hard to buy a business to acquire a business. We think our team and our strategy is putting us in a really good position to do so successfully and get buy-in from the people that we're in with this newfound brand awareness and growth. Like we're hoping to attract people to H&O. Mm. Like if, if you're a business owner out there and you've been running a firm and you found that like running a firm's really stressful and hard and like these things and you don't have, but you love the business, you love engineering. Like we'd love to collaborate and partner with you. Like that is a really good pr partnership because you have the capacity to do it. We have the systems and the entire business built out behind it to put everybody in a position to succeed. Yeah, and I think that's smart. I mean, you know, look, you've said it many times, but when when you can have that holistic alignment, not just between firm and client, but within the team as well, and have have the incentives aligned, the process aligned, the mission, values, purpose, all that stuff aligned appropriately, yeah. it makes for a powerful, you know, powerful value proposition to to clients, to employees, to you know, partners or acquisition opportunities. I mean, so I think, I think you're right on track and it's, it's a, it's a pretty smart uh, strategy and plan for sure. Yeah. Thank you. We kind of, now that we've done it, we would not consider business any other way, to be honest. Like it just gives team the complete context. And there's all these reasons for why you might not, right? Like people will see how much money we make. People will see that we don't make money and they're going to run scared, right? Like my books are a mess. Like I don't even know how to control. And if they know that, then they're going to run. Like there's a million reasons why the reason the pros to why are like so far above and beyond the risks like it is they understand value how is value created and if you can teach people how value is created they're going to start to see ways to add value to the business right and it increases their 
they're empowered to do more. Their earning potential goes up. The, co the company makes more money. Like everybody wins when you create an environment where people get it. Yeah, w without a doubt. And, 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 and I think so with, you know, sort of the acquisition strategy of a minder, most um, engineering firms, structural engineering firms specifically, are they sort of small, medium business or is there sort of a, a wide range of different opportunity or different uh, types of firms and size firms? Great question. So I don't have like industry wide data, but if I, if I were to talk about when I stepped into or when we, when we went to launch H&O, the thing that we were talking about was the market opportunity. So we had visibility from the steel company. We're getting design drawings from everybody in the market because we're bidding mm -hmm. all of the jobs to do the steel work. So right. we see from every single firm and we both worked in the market for our careers and lived around here. So we were familiar with the players. There was a few firms that served high rise institutional hospitals. There's those few firms. They're saturated just doing that work. Then there's a few firms that compete in the mid market. Let's talk your podium, your high, your podium, your, mm -hmm. your garden style apartments, your, your 95 belt, like office building, that type of stuff. And then there's a bunch of firms that are, I, I call them kind of garage engineers. Like there's the one Z, two Z, three Z firms, yep. like the people that are kind of doing their small local work that have no, it's a lifestyle business and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's a lifestyle business. They have only so much capacity that they can grow and they're not trying to grow. So what we saw, we saw the bull market, the demand, everything that was here and that largely underserved. Yep. Like, so we saw that opportunity. And when I think my, my intuition is if I, if we looked nationally is we're going to see more of the same, right? I, I don't think that's going to really change nationally. I got to get better data and something I'm actually working on right now is getting better, better data on if I do go niche or if I do go to Raleigh or Denver or if I pick another market like Miami, I want to actually have better data because your total addressable market and like what you go after, like what game you play has so much to do with how much success and opportunity you have. Like if I want to do multifamily and I see one city that has two billion a year in multifamily development and another city has 6 billion and I can look at the number of suppliers that are actually like working in those market, I can gauge how well it's served relative to the scale of the market. And now I understand if I go in, let's say 15% of that market is actually my total addressable market. Like I don't want every client. I only mm. want my clients. You assume that it's 15. I can gate now gauge like, okay, that's a $10 million opportunity. This is a $20 million opportunity. And if I'm going to put eggs and invest somewhere, I'm going to go for the $20 million opportunity, right? So I'm trying to get better data. Nice. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, I think with most things as we're working on here in in, uh, in real estate, is uh, it's especially a data-driven business. And whether you're making investment decisions to buy businesses or invest in real estate, it's always it's always useful to have good data unless you're PT and just rely on intuition all the time. It's got a great gut. <laughs> <laughs> Get bigger by the day. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, maybe just to kind of kind of close it down and wrap it up a little bit here, we can dive into um, you know some of the some of the things you 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 like to do. PT mentioned golf, but what else do you do for uh, for your downtime? For my downtime, I golf. I family. I got two young kids. Uh, my son's five. Ren's five. I'm Ren's four. It's legacy. Um, my daughter, Maisie, she is three and my wife, Allie. Um, so I spend as much time as I can with them. Otherwise, like I'm a student, this is the game I enjoy playing the, mm. the game of business and real estate development, engineering and golf. Fantastic. What's your, uh, what's your, what is a handicap on golf? Handicap? Is that the right, the not, right question? Not, not as low as Jerry's. <laughs> yeah. So Jeremiah, <laughs> I, I always like to say, I compete with Jeremiah at everything that he's the best at. So he's the best engineer I know. He's one of the best golfers I know. So like I always, I was like, pick any other sport, Jerry. <laughs> Let's play something different. No. He's like, I only play games that I'm going to win. Why would I do anything different? <laughs> Smart. Right yeah. there, right there, you know. Um, cool. Any, uh, what's the best book you read in the past uh, year, call it? I'll, I'll share two books, and I like this question. Um, $100 million offers by Alex Hermosi. Um, this guy has essentially executed like my vision of a bigger holding company and acquisition, like better, faster, like just completely. The guy is incredible. He, his book, it, the premise of that book is make an offer so good that people feel stupid saying, oh, I might've already said that either before or during this episode, but the way he 
sizes up an opportunity in a market and he quickly identifies the opportunity and how to best address the market and then create an offer that's so good that people feel stupid saying no like just the the mindset of trying to craft that like just trying to solve that problem is such a good way to get there like i couldn't recommend that i probably read that i think i read it for the entire month of january straight i might have read it six eight times i pick it up periodically the second book that I would recommend is The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. And I honestly like associate him to like the Darwin of our day today. <laughs> like this guy is so well read. He is such a deep thinker. He's so articulate. And I'll share I'll share two things that were like a big takeaway for me because I, I thought it was the words are perfect to describe it is judgment and leverage. And the message is in an age of leverage, judgment is far more valuable than time. And I'm always an advocate. I've always said like, time does not equal value. If you say like, I'm $10 an hour to cover my bills and it's four hours. So that service is $40. Yeah. But what if that four hours of work of, of work just made somebody 50 grand? Was that worth 40 bucks? No. Like it's, it, it created far more value than right. the time, the time and the value doesn't matter. So judgment is far more value so to drive home the message of judgment if somebody is responsible for a billion dollars worth of investment and one potential leader's probability of being right is 70 percent, and the other person's probability is 80 percent, that's worth a hundred million dollars 10 percent judgment both are great but the gap between those two people is a hundred million dollars and that has nothing to do with time and then the four types of leverage that he talks about one is people. So yeah, you manage a team, you have leverage to get more done. You have a company, you have more leverage to get things done people. Second one is financial. So equity and debt, real estate's a perfect example. You get to raise equity, you get to leverage debt, you can get more. You can get compounding returns because you have access to equity and debt. It's financial. Third one's technology, software. We, I know Mike goes against the venture back. We talk venture back <laughs> companies, but the reason they're venture backed and people go for this all or nothing play is because the inputs required to generate potential exponential returns are significant. So like input to output, that's the gap in leverage. And the fourth one is content. It's what we're doing out here today, right? Like we spend time right now talking, talking, getting to know each other, sharing our stories. Now this audio gets cut up, videos get cut up, it gets posted on all major platforms, social media, YouTube, wherever it goes that content is just going to work in perpetuity. So we spent an hour, two hours together today. You create content. Now that gets to work for you forever. And we do this over a year, two years, five years. People find out about us in two, three years. They're going to come, they might come back and listen to this, right? That's significant leverage on content and creating brand awareness. It's not like putting an ad in a magazine that people threw out, right? Like content's super powerful. So the four areas of leverage, judgment, such a great book would would recommend it very cool i actually haven't read that yet i've been it's been recommended to me a few times but i will have to definitely add that to the to the top of my list here so good yeah. rec sorry for the long response I'm, no, I'm i was gonna say i may not even need to read the book I now mean, apparently just talk to Ren too. um <laughs> there's more cliff to notes. it than that <laughs> Ren's cliff notes perfect for you <laughs> there's more to it but i yeah. those those are so impactful like i, I love how he framed that it yeah. drives that message home fantastic what else uh what else do we need to know that we haven't asked you what else do we if need anything. to know? PT had a, what was your prep question? What's something crazy but true? Ah, that's Should a good we, one. Do we roll with that? Let's do roll with it. Let's, let's hear it. Let's like so the say. crazy but true, we launched H&O in 2016. Mm. I think it was June in 2016. I didn't work full-time at our own company until 2019. That's very cool, actually. And, yeah. you know, because it usually goes the other way, right? right. You start the business, <laughs> you absolutely pull your hair out, grind, 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 grind. And then maybe someday it's successful and you can kind of back off. But you you actually went opposite, which is, which is pretty wild. That doesn't mean I wasn't like doing work for the company. And like I was really relationship sales driven. Jeremiah and I worked together at the at the steel company while we built this yeah. process. And we got more work, but we decided for... Jeremiah to go full-time to work on executing. He's a far better engineer than I am. So him working in like an operations and getting projects done was a way better leverage of his skill set than mine. And we started hiring people instead of having me go, instead of him and I to start doing projects, he started doing projects and we started hiring people. So I think we had three employees before I started working there full-time. So we just kept hiring people to get the work done. And I was working on the sales and the relationships and business process and strategy alongside Jeremiah. 
during that time. Really cool. I think it's kind of that's unique. That that is a very unique and uh, what was the question? Fun but true fact or crazy yeah, crazy but true? That's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens when you uh, make up the questions for the show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I liked it. But uh, Renz, it was fantastic having you, man. I always learn a lot talking to you, and uh, yeah. hopefully this is the uh, uh, the start of many, many more conversations yeah. and, and hopefully working together on some cool projects. Thanks, Thanks Renz. Yeah, really, really informative. Awesome. Really appreciate it. Thank you guys so much. Love what you're doing here at Charles Gate. Awesome. Good yeah. stuff. And uh, hopefully we see everyone next time on another uh, episode of Empowered Returns. And in the show notes and everything, we'll have all the links and how to contact Renz and find Renz. And uh, and uh, if anyone wants to, to reach out for structural engineering work or business advice or a book report, feel free. <laughs> See everybody. I love that. Thank you for listening to another episode of Empowered Returns. If you're a forward-thinking real estate investor or developer looking for actionable advice that will help you generate market-beating returns, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fix. I'm Mike DeMello with Charles Gate. And I'd love to connect on LinkedIn and further the conversation for any specific questions you may have. Thank you for listening.